Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Crazy People podcast. Uh, today's guest, Dave Pope, who has been through a lot, but man, what a great guy. What do you think, Maurice? Yeah, it's it's amazing with all the BS that he experienced, yeah. with, um, especially that one job that uh, where mm. the post went viral. What a story. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible that there's still people out there like this. Mm. But overall, he's uh, what I like just as much uh, trainer by heart and discovered his marketing skills and brownness and uh, brought all this training know-how and the know-how about what is important for users uh, or about the for the people that he's training and brought it into the marketing and the storytelling and everything else that he does and um yeah just an amazing guy really it's uh <laughs> as we as we told him at the end <laughs> russ he needs to do more and he needs to put more of himself out there oh yeah uh, people can experience him what do you think yeah no i, I agree 100 percent um just a, a kind human being um but also super knowledgeable just that uh, he kept sort of chaining on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing that he he knew and had worked on had done um just fantastic story after story um and and he just he's a genuine good guy mm-hmm. um and he's i think he said in the middle there he's he's not real comfortable with being super open about personal stuff until he realized that it's all personal stuff um which i just really opened my eyes so this is this is a great episode everybody stay tuned you're gonna love this one all right here we go because really what could go wrong once you press record right exactly what could go wrong (laughs) (laughs) it's all gonna be very perfect welcome welcome everybody another episode of crazy people doing a podcast the crazy people podcast i'm russ brummel over there in the other side of the table is the captain of curiosity maurice hoffman and uh, in the hot seat today in the middle we have tried and tried and we finally got to talk to him dave pope welcome dave thank you very much guys it's great to be here i look forward to uh, learning more about being a crazy person (laughs) <laughs> if you have to learn about it i don't know <laughs> but, uh, first of all thanks for for coming on the show thanks for taking the time and uh going all through all the trials and tribulation of making this happen and uh why don't we kick it off with uh, a bit of oranging story tell people about who you are what you've done and where you're from okay <laughs> okay so my name is Dave Pope. I am, to begin with where I started from is a little crazy. So <clears throat> I went to school for photography, studied photojournalism and commercial photography. I ended up studying photojournalism because that's what they wanted me for, because that's what I'd been doing. I wanted to do commercial photography. After school, like so many people, I was able to get a job in retail and spend most of my early days in retail eventually becoming vice president of retail sales for a company. Over time, I always kept going with the photography, hung on to it as much as I could. I ended up working for Apple. When I got to Apple, they were like, wow, you, you know a lot about photography. We actually teach classes on DSLRs. We don't have a lot of people here who can teach that. Would you be willing to pick those courses up? And I said, absolutely. So I stayed with Apple for 10 years as a creative pro with them, teaching photography and filmmaking with them. 
I left there and actually became what they call a adoption solutions consultant. It's a great title. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So an adoption solutions consultant, and this is what really jump started where I am today. An adoption solutions consultant is somebody who creates training, but also creates an adoption program around that training. And that changed everything I thought about for the training environment. Because oftentimes when we think about, well, we provide you training, you should know this stuff. And what I've learned over the years is that that's not it. Training is a small piece of a bigger puzzle. And the real program is the adoption and getting people to use the technology and the software. And if you don't have a program in place, then you can do all the training in the world. It's not going to mean anything. Yeah. After I left that company, I went to work for another company, which is where I think you guys found my story. (laughs) And I became senior director of user adoption and training and marketing, which is kind of a weird side thing in there. But my photography and filmmaking came into that part of it. That's how I ended up in that role. And today I am currently working, helping a apprenticeship program for construction industry doing their marketing for their training programs nice that's me i've got a beautiful wife i've got two gorgeous dogs i got a bloodhound and an italian spinoni and the moment i said italian spinoni everybody listening to this right now is googling what the heck an italian spinoni is (laughs) thank you (laughs) it is not a dessert it is not a pasta dish (laughs) so I love his bologna with a little bit of sauce on it. It's very good. (laughs) (laughs) That is funny. So you you did 10 years at Apple um, teaching classes on photography there. Um, I didn't know they had any interest in that area uh, other than providing technology for it. Yeah, particularly early days. This is going back to Steve Jobs days. We provided a lot of training. We actually sold DSLRs. We had a whole division just for cameras and teaching people how to use their cameras. What happened is it evolved as the iPhone evolved and became a real photography and filmmaking tool. So did our training classes. We kind of moved away from the DSLRs because what was happening was we were starting to see that the iPhone really was, could be your DSLR and it's a great filmmaking tool. So yeah. that's where we ended up taking it and developed a really beautiful program around that. And there is something very cool about standing in front of a hundred people with a giant wall size screen as you're showing them images and talking to them about how to create the perfect landscape or how to shoot beautiful portraits. and. We would do photo walks with them and take them out and actually teach them how to use the devices and then come back and teach them how to edit everything on the iPhone. And it was pretty cool. That is that is so funny that you said photo walks. I um little side story. Um I have a friend of mine. I, I'm working on a photo book right now. Um, something about my New York days and whatever, especially uh through the pandemic and 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 um kind of street art. And he looked through my photos and he was like, yeah, let's do a photo tour. And then I show you how to take pictures. And I was like, oh, it's that bad, huh? (laughs) Uh. 
So, you know, it's funny you should say that because I have a great story about this. I had a young woman who used to come in for classes and she had just started getting into photography. And as often happens, somebody, her husband had actually, in this case, given her a camera for Christmas. She was really excited to get going on it. So she came in and she did some basic lessons. And she, one of the things that we talked about was I was limited as to the time that I could spend with her and teach her. And I suggested that she go down to one of our community programs here and sign up for some classes and get out into the field a little bit more with her new camera and use it. And then we can come back and discuss the photos that she had done. It was probably about a month before I saw her, which was unusual because usually I saw her two to three times a week. She got back and she said, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. And I said, what happened? She said, well, I went and took one of those classes and we got done after a day of shooting and we showed our image and the person leading the class explained how horrible my image was and why I shouldn't be doing this. And this is one of the best things I think people can learn. And I think this is a great, what I'm about to say really applies to trainers as well. I said, well, let's bring this image up and take a look at it. So she brings the image up. And I was like, that's a great image. And what it was, was she had stood up on a roof shooting down into an alleyway where the four alleys came together. And in the middle of it, was a red trash can or something bright red. Everything else around it was kind of grayish and off. And he didn't like it because the trash can had ended up in the center of the image. And I said, well, what made you take that? She said, I thought that was really cool. I loved the contrast of the gray with this bright red box in the middle of it. And I said, I do too. I said, let's make this image something that could be really great. And we did. We spent an hour going through we worked on editing the image, adding different things, worked on the dodging and the burning, bringing up the saturation and the vibration so uh, vibrance to make the colors pop that were in there, darkening down those shadows and those black areas. And when we were done, she's like, wow, I really like this image. Three weeks later, she walked in. She had submitted the image to a contest and took first place. <laughs> she had gone from an image that a Somebody, a teacher had told her was no good to yeah. winning a contest. And if okay. you guys don't know where I live, I live just outside of Rochester, New York. Mm -hmm. Pretty much the birthplace of photography as we know it today. That's where Kodak is based. And when you win a photo contest in this city, it means something. <laughs> and I was so happy to see the difference. And the, to me, this is what really made training important to me. The difference wasn't saying no. The difference was, let's figure out how we can make this what you want it to be. And that moment changed everything for me. So what makes a great trainer for you in your eyes? I think you have to have understanding. You have to appreciate that every person is different and everybody learns differently. Mm -hmm. And also recognize you can't be all things to everybody. Mm -hmm. But if you want to be successful as a trainer, you have to be supportive. You have to understand that people are trying and doing their best and that your goal is to bring the best out in them, no matter what it is. But that is, I can, I can imagine, especially the, the example that you gave with that lady, that got to be also very fulfilling to see that whatever training approach you have really causes somebody to not only be misunderstood and being, being ready to quit whatever the subject is, to really being self-confident enough or confident enough to, to participate in a contest. That gotta be amazing. 
It's a, it's an incredible feeling. It's why I do what I do is, is those feelings. And it's, it's funny because somebody asked me recently, they're like, how the heck did you end up in marketing for this industry? And I was like, well, first of all, marketing for training is very unique. And oftentimes, and this is not a shot at anybody in the marketing industry, they don't understand how to market things like that. And when you learn how to speak that language of training and, and the difference that you can make for somebody, when I ended up over here at the company I'm currently supporting, the reason I ended up there was because I saw what they were trying to do. I believed in what they were trying to do. And I knew when I do, and this is why I do everything I do today. I knew that I was going to have an impact and I knew that I'd be able to help them. Yeah. And I learned that from the years that I've been working, what I value. And it's always about how am I going to end up helping somebody and how am I going to, I get more, I get more positive reinforcement when I successfully help somebody than I do for any recognition that I may have received. There is that it's better than a drug for me that, you know, you get that feeling of, wow, this really had an impact. It made a difference to somebody in what they were doing. And even if it's that one person that walks out or, or ends the class and you get that survey back that says, this was really great. I really appreciate that. I should point out, by the way, that's not always how things went for me. I had to join Toastmasters because I got a lot of really bad feedback from people. They were like, please stop doing this. <laughs> I know. Yeah, sometimes it is. But yeah, it, it makes sense that you went from training to marketing because nobody knows the product like those people training the product. Nobody knows what features, what um, what tools and so on are relevant for the audience as those people do who train the product every day because they get the feedback from the audience every day, right? They know what to talk about, what not to talk about because nobody uses that feature, right? That is hidden somewhere 15 min menus down. Nobody cares, right? Um, and that is, yeah, that makes absolutely sense. So marketing, what what did you do there? So, well, in the, in the case of the company I'm working with right now, everything. As a matter of fact, the last company I worked for, everything. So the last company, I was senior director of user adoption, training, and marketing. And it ended up, because we were a training company, that's what we did. We created training for Cisco, Microsoft Teams, Zoom, Slack, all of these different companies, collaboration solutions. So in that case, basically, you name it, I did it. I'm a one-man shop, you, you can kind of see I'm in a studio right now. I've got lights, I've got cameras, I've got all the gear. And working with the smaller companies, like the company before was 125, I think we had 140 people. I can have a much bigger impact. And creating things from the content, the videos, the social media posts, um, writing white papers and creating articles, all those types of things, setting up podcasts and working with, in this case, the, this company, I do a lot of PR work because we're a nonprofit organization. So I'm doing a lot of PR work, reaching out to them, promoting our open enrollment classes because we are an apprenticeship company for uh, construction companies, You know, making sure that people know that we have these classes and getting that kind of information out there, scheduling trade shows, promoting the trade shows, making sure that we're speaking to different government agencies, setting up speaking engagements around the area. When you work for small companies, and I always, I see these posts all the time on LinkedIn, and I get a kick out of it. You know, 
uh, how, can we meet with your marketing team? Absolutely. I'm sitting right here. I am the marketing team. <laughs> and that's why when I chose this, I, a friend of mine reached out to me when I had done that LinkedIn post that went viral. And he said, I, I know that you're looking to make a difference. I know that you really love training and adoption. This kind of ties into what we're doing. And with your marketing background, I really feel like you could help us a great deal. And that's why I ended up coming here because it was a nonprofit. It was an organization that I felt that I could have an impact with. Unfortunately, it's only part-time. I have not been able to find a full-time gig yet in either the user adoption and training area or marketing. But I get up every day and I look forward to what I'm doing because I'm having an impact and I see the difference that I can make. And, you know, we just had a meeting yesterday and hearing the excitement that they're having about the impact that I am having within this, that's, that's just everything to me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's worth working and doing this kind of work, even on a part-time basis, it's making a difference for somebody. So. Well, tell us a little bit about that that LinkedIn post. I think that's maybe how I first got to to know you, Dave, but tell the audience a little bit about how that, because it was not always a dream world, right? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. I, so there's a piece that has to go before this. And that is when I left Apple, I went to work for what was literally my dream company. It was a company that the people I worked with, the CEO his philosophies off of Yvonne Chavard's book, Let My People Go Surfing. When I walked in the door of this company, they had the values of the company painted on the walls. Every room you went into had a new value. They had the company motto, people first, painted on the wall. It was everything that we did. The company was sold and I moved on because honestly, the company that purchased us was like, I don't know what to do with you. And then I took this job. This was a company that when I had started, when my partner and I were working on building up the collaboration and training solutions for this last company, we had looked at this company as a model. So when they reached out to me and they're like, hey, we want you to cook with us. I was like, absolutely. Are you kidding me? This is great. <laughs> my first clue that things were not going to go well is, the day that I was hired, the person that was supposed to train me was no longer there. They had quit. Okay, so I reached out to the other person that had done all my paperwork and everything and found out she was no longer there. She had also quit. Okay, this is a concern. And as I'm discussing this with the training manager, she says to me, I know we brought you on to do user adoption, but I'm leaving. <laughs> would you do you think you could do my job as well and i'm like oh okay i got a bad feeling that three people but i chose to stick with it because one i was very passionate about it we were working with companies that i wanted to work with cisco teams slack zoom i wanted to do this work and because of that situation what ended up happening was i ended up basically becoming that entire department i ended up taking on three different roles but it put me into a position to have a huge impact it didn't work out well. <laughs> the company did a lot of things that, that I was not comfortable with ethically, and they mm -hmm. made a lot of choices that I would not have made. I'm being as politically correct here as I can. The stress got to me, and I ended up in cardiac distress. So basically, I was having a heart attack, and I was going to the hospital. 
Yeah. As I was in the hospital, and this is the story behind it, and this is my post, I shared this story of this moment and when I realized my life needed to change and I needed to make some choices. I was in the hospital and they were literally wheeling me down to go in for an angiogram to look into my heart. And as I'm being wheeled in, the vice president of sales is asking me to get on a call. He knows I am in the hospital. He knows that I'm having heart problems. He, I, actually, at that point, we knew that I'd had a heart attack. We knew what was going on. And he wants to know if I can get on a call because he can't do the call without me because nobody knows the things that I do. And I can speak to the clients better than most people can. My doctor said at that point, he's like, you can't keep doing this. It's literally, and of course, you're on the, all these monitors and the monitors are going off and my numbers started to flatline again. And they're like, this is it. You can't do this. Anymore. And what came out of it was basically it was, it was, if you know anything about attack, heart attacks versus arrest, we just learned about this here with the Buffalo Bills. I stressed myself out to the point where I was stopping my own heart. There weren't any blockages. I didn't, there was, the, there was no blockage or anything like that, but I was, I was getting so stressed from this job and from the things. And I made the choice. Now, here's the thing that everybody should understand about this. When I made this choice, I made the choice with the understanding that I had built up pretty good connections in my industry. Mm -hmm. And I really thought that there was going to be a fair amount of opportunities. And I discussed it. Of course, my wife and my family were like, you're done. I can't. And, and my poor wife was like, I can't go through this again. And the doctor already said, look, you will do this again if you stay in what you're doing. So I thought, great. I left. And this is where everybody got to read about it. After a while, I didn't hear from anybody. And eventually, I ended up writing this, this post. And I think this post is a really important thing for people to understand. I'm not a person who likes to put a lot of personal stuff on social media. If you look at my, my social media, you'll find mostly my photography, my videos, my professional work. It took a lot for me to put this post together. And I wrote it and I rewrote it. And basically, I told people about what had happened and why I had made the decision. And that I, this now left me open to look for the right company, the right job, to find the right place to work. It had changed my priorities in my life. It took a lot for me to get that kind of commitment. But it went viral. I've written articles, I've done videos, I've posted commercials. I've never had this kind of reaction. You don't always wanna have personal things out there on social media, mm -hmm. but sometimes, the way that you want to connect with people. You can only do that on a personal level. Yeah. You cannot connect to people. And I won't say who, it's not my wife, but somebody in my family loves to say it's not personal, it's business. And my entire life, my argument has always been business is always personal. Mm -hmm. And this is a really good example of the connections that I got, the people I reached out. I met Russ through this. I have developed some of the best relationships that I've had and the best connections on LinkedIn because of sharing my story of what it, you know, what can happen. But one thing that people need to understand is I ended up in that situation because I really love what I do and I really believe in what we do. And 
I wanted to make sure that although we were making crazy promises to our clients, I wanted to make sure we met those, those needs for them. And I made sure that if our salespeople made promises, even after I begged them to stop doing that, (laughs) that we were going to meet those commitments. And that's it. That's, you know, it brought me down to that moment. And that moment brought me into a very personal story. And that personal story connected me to thousands of new people I wasn't connected to before. And I'm very, very happy. I may not have gotten the job I was hoping for out of it, but the connections and the people that I've met have been amazing. The thing is, and I, I have that with, with people that I they consult on or where I'm just big brother type of, right? And I say, yes, you can put all your energy in a company, but at the end of the day, you have to manage your energy, right? Because if you don't do it, the company will not thank you for it. They will call you, as you've seen, on the hospital bed, right? (laughs) And if if you if you let them for for that matter, right? It's it's not paying off um, if you run your energy down. Um, And it's it's amazing how I mean, not to that degree, right? (laughs) Usually, people if they hear you're having a heart attack, they kind of stop calling. (laughs) You would think, yes, yes. Yeah, the cell reception is probably not good in the OR, guys. I'm probably not going to be able to, you know, maybe. Also, I'm going to be on drugs. Yeah. (laughs) You're breaking up, I don't know. (laughs) I have to say this, by the way. The owner, the CEO of the company was actually like, hey, if you need anything, let me know. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, his second in command was like, I don't really care. I got stuff that's got to get done. And that's exactly it. It's like. I finally stopped answering the phone. It was the only way to get it to, to end. Yeah. I also I also think the days of, of working 60, 60 hours, 70 hours a week are not necessarily over, but it's 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 falling out of fashion. Right? Yeah. I remember when I when I used to run my agency and work with other consultants and so on. It was kind of like a sport to say, hey, I'm working from 8 a.m. in the morning to 2 a.m. in the morning, uh, again in the morning, right? right. Um, and that was kind of like, it was a badge of honor. Everybody said, yeah, I worked 16 hours. Oh, no, I worked 18 hours and and whatever. And nowadays, well, well for one, it's because we're all getting older. And... <laughs> And, I don't know and, what you're talking about. This isn't great. Know, it's, gotta, it's gotta be me. It's gotta be me. Um, and, and second of all, as a society, and I think that's the one thing that COVID really does, did for, for workers, period, is to say, no, work-life balance is important. And working remotely is absolutely possible. And working 40 hours is better than working 60 hours if you just handle the the efficiency right. I know that's right. like the most German thing to say, right? Talking about efficiency. Um, but that's really what it is, right? Because at 60 hours, if that is every week, you lose your productivity eventually, right? Because you're you're spending everything that you do takes longer, you get slower, your the quality that you put out is not as good anymore. So that's where I think a lot of companies staying away from taking, giving extra hours and, and, and just working their, their employees to the bones, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things you mentioned there, particularly with the remote, that I've learned, I have the feeling a lot of other people have, is I am way more efficient working from home. 
Now, I made sure that I have a, a studio, I have a space that I can work in. But I also discovered I don't get the interruptions here. So when I'm down here in, in the studio and get doing my work, I don't have people stepping by, stopping by my desk and asking me questions or talking about how their day went. Don't get me wrong. I love that. I loved when people wanted to stop and say hi and, and chat. But when you're remote and you're not surrounded by people, you're putting 40 hours in. You're not putting, you know, I, I step back and look at this and I was like, geez, when I was in an office all the time, how many hours did I actually work? You know, yes, I worked 60 hours a week, but did I? I mean, because how much time did people stop and talk to me or a boss asked me to do run off and do a side errand or something? With remote work, you don't have all the interruptions that you're used to getting in an office. And I think we're much more efficient in a remote space. So yeah, you've got that work-life balance. You've got time with your family to do the things that we want to do. But you also have the... You don't have the distractions. And when you're working, you're able to work. The other thing that I find with a remote work too, and I don't know if you guys found this, is I have times, particularly because right now with the marketing stuff, that I'm not in that creative space right now. Right? I got to come up with a video. I've got to shoot a commercial or something like that. I'm not feeling it. But maybe at eight o'clock at night, I am. So I may not have been efficient and been doing, you know, been able to get that thing done. And maybe I had to work on something else. But at eight o'clock, it hits me and I can run downstairs and jump on and get the gear out and start shooting because I'm feeling that in that moment. Mm -hmm. And and it's funny because when you step back and look at it and you start saying, you know, I, well, it's all about working those 40 hours and getting the efficiency. And you start really, like, geez, I actually work 50 hours a week, but it didn't feel like I worked 50 hours a week because at 11 o'clock at night, I hopped out of bed all of it excited because I realized how to fix this problem or I realized how I could make this do that. And I wanted to go work on it. And it changes the way we think about things. And I wish companies understood that remote work, not only I feel is more efficient but it can be a really powerful tool for getting work done. Yeah, I I, I started, well, I, I ran my own business back 99, 2000, 2001. Um, and I ran it from the house. I was a one-man shop. Um, I, I did all the selling. I did all the coding. I did all the delivery. I crawled through the ceiling to run computer cables, you know, all the, all the stuff. But it meant that when I had to do my invoicing, I was like, oh. Well, great. I'm tired. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm just going to sit and do invoicing because I don't have to think about it. I just type stuff in and get it sent out back then it was in the mail. Uh, <laughs> people didn't always have email, but, but when I'm like, oh, now I'm, I'm I have energy and I'm writing code and it's one o'clock in the morning uh, because I'm on and I'm like, oh yes, I know I can, I figured out the solution to this problem. Um, and then I went to work for my biggest customer in an office. And when they started having difficulties and moved over to another company and I went to work in their office and realized that um, some of that high creative energy stuff, I ended up insisting on, I have to have a laptop because I'm going to sit at home at 10 o'clock at night when I have a great idea for how we should roll out this initiative to this team, whatever it was, and I can write it up and put it together and do a PowerPoint on it. Um, and I think people forget that when they're like, you know, be in the office by 830 and stay here till five. That's not always your best, most productive hours. And when I lived on Long Island, 
I was commuting an hour and a half each way to work. When we moved out here to Louisville, it went down to half hour, but still that's, that's an hour a day when I'm staring out the windshield, you know, and, and I could be doing way better things than that, either working or, or spending time with family. Right. Um, but so how do you, Dave, as, as a, as a guy who's now, or has been doing training for a long, long time, and now is working in kind of a different way, how do you help communicate that to, to the people you're working for, the people you're working with? How do you, how do you help them see the value um, that you're delivering there? That can be tough, obviously, because I'm still trying to find the right thing. But yeah. for me, communicating that is helping them to understand what I do, particularly because what I do is unique. I mean, somebody mm-hmm. who works in training and user adoption and marketing, that's a unique area because people don't always see the value. What I have found is one, I do have a portfolio of work. You can go up to my LinkedIn and you can actually see some of the videos that I've created specifically for training companies. Mm -hmm. I have articles and posts that I've done that I can also share that. But I think the best way that I can communicate that is when I get the opportunity to speak to people in the way that we are. So Mm -hmm. saying to somebody, I am unique. I know that I'm unique. I know that what I do coming from the user adoption and training atmosphere and being able to communicate that in a marketing sense makes me different from what other people typically do. I am not a marketer. I am a trainer. I'm a user adoption and training person who understands marketing. I understand what it means to do a content gap analysis. I know what it means to do a competitive and a competitive market analysis. I know what it means to create that marketing plan. And I can take those skills and apply them into the user adoption and training world Mm -hmm. in a way that other people can't, because I not only know the industry, if you can't tell, I'm really passionate about it. And I understand the importance of the KPIs on both sides. We have to deal with those key performance indicators on both the training and the user adoption side, but also on that marketing side. Mm -hmm. I understand what the numbers mean on both sides and how to communicate that out to people, how we can get the most out of what we do. Um, I talked to a, an author, um, maybe it's now a couple of years ago, he wrote a book called, I think it's called What's Your And? Um, with the idea that, okay, I'm an accountant and yeah. a painter, right? I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm a podiatrist and... I raise dogs. I, you know, I'm a, you, everybody has an and, right? I, I'm a, I'm a trainer and a marketer and an operations guy. And I know, you know, this and that and the other thing, right? So it's, um, and when you just look at a resume or a LinkedIn profile or whatever, it's hard to see the, the ands in people's lives. Yes. And in finding that way to communicate that out, I mean, you know, it's all, I see a lot of people talk about personal brand and LinkedIn does a lot about personal brand. And that's something that people need to understand is having that personal brand and communicating that out. If you go through my LinkedIn, you know, you can see, yes. That's the, that's the book about it. That Steve I can Forbes. Read it. Authority marketing by. Uh... Steve Forbes. Yeah. No, yes. this, uh, Adam Vitti and Rusty Shelton. There you go. Authority marketing. Yeah, it's it's all about, you know, we talk about personal branding. Mm-hmm. And if you go into my LinkedIn, I write about everything that I write about ties back to collaboration training and marketing. That's what you're going to see. It's, it's user adoption, it's 
collaboration solutions, it's training, and it's marketing in one way, shape, or form. And you can go through posts, and I post three to four times a week, and that's what you'll see. And that's the thing that you have to do is, you know, when somebody goes in and they look at my profile, they're like, okay, I get what this guy does now because this is what he's talking about. And we forget about our personal brand. And you did a great example of the and, because here's the thing. If, if, if I asked you, if I looked on LinkedIn and said, what do you do, Russ? You're in sales. No, you're not in sales. You're, you're in sales and you do a crazy people podcast. Mm-hmm. That also gives me a whole other idea of what additional skills you have. When you host a, a podcast like this, that tells me the communication is important to you. Mm-hmm. It tells me, and there's a couple of different things that you've got going here. So not only is communication important, but you have to market the podcast. You mm-hmm. have to edit the videos. You have to edit the audio and the music that goes with it and everything else that has to go on. So your ands go on and on and on. And that is only because of just the podcast. But then you look at all the outside activities that you do and start thinking about professionally, what is that? And you are, I do sales and this and this and this and this, and you start realizing there's a lot of ands after what you do. And all of that can come back and support. You know, you mentioned earlier, somebody saying, I do this and I raise dogs. Well, what does that tell me? Well, now I know that this person is probably a caring individual. They have attention to detail, right? If they're, if, particularly if they're raising show dogs, now I know that they take great pride in the outcome of products. They take great pride in how something appears and looks. There's a lot of training that they have to put into the dogs. That one hand, exactly. That one can come back on a lot of different things. Yeah. So digging deeper into one of your posts, um, there's a there's a post that I can see where you talk about AI, AI in sales, and uh, AI in business in general. What is your perspective, uh, especially if coming from a training training environment? where it is rumored that AI is taking over the world pretty soon, right? What is your perspective? I think AI is an incredible tool, but it's no more of a tool than a hammer is in a carpenter's hand. In other words, and in that post, I gave some examples. We've recently seen where companies launched AI and they're like, it's going to change everything. Let's fire the 500 people that were in our customer service. Great, you're gone. AI is going to take over. And it didn't take long for people to realize, I can tell the AI to do things for me because it's just a prompt, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a great example where a car dealership replaced a customer service with AI. And this guy went in and just by asking the AI certain questions in the chat box, he got the AI to sell him a car for $1, a brand new car for $1. Now, obviously, the dealership realized what was happening. They were able to stop it. But he had gotten the AI to do that. And another good example that I just recently saw where company had actually let their customer service people go, replaced them with AI. And this one of their competitors went in and using the prompts and asking the right questions in the right manner, got the chatbot, the AI chatbot, to actually say on its opening remarks to people, this is the worst company I've ever worked for. I don't know why you would ever do business with them. And what's happened is <laughs> AI is a tool. 
And it should be used, particularly right now, as we're still exploring it, carefully. It still needs us. It is not ready to go off on its own. And in that article, I actually point out, you wouldn't hire a five-year-old to be a customer service person and put them on the phones because they haven't learned that yet, Mm -hmm. right? And it's the same example. AI is a five-year-old. It knows how to do things. If I tell it, I need you to walk in a straight line, it can do that. If I say, keep your hands in your lap when you're eating, it knows to do that. If I say, use a fork to eat your peas, it does that. Well, not if it's a five-year-old, it probably says, I'm not going to eat the peas, I agree. But <laughs> this is the example that I've been trying to help people understand with AI. Yes, it knows to do things, but it still needs the guidance. It still needs help to understand. And using it and implementing it, absolutely fantastic idea. But don't let it run on its own. You have to make sure that you're still there to give it the support and the guidance that it needs. Because right now we're not there, but we will be. But boy, I have never seen a technology people jump in so tight and so hard on. People are like, holy cow, it's going to change everything. And it's amazing to me that companies are literally laying off people and trying to replace them with AI. And then we're getting stories in the media and social media about how badly it can go for them. So I hope that answered that question. (laughs) <laughs> you did you did <laughs> you did hey it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you i don't want to steal much more of your early friday afternoon but i have one more thing that i uh i'm looking forward to your answer actually and that is dinner guests dead or alive five people who do you invite <sighs> You know, I always love this question because I never have the, I never have an answer for it. Hemingway, <laughs> the one thing I always think of is Ernest Hemingway would be one of the first people. I'm enthralled by his books and his writing and the way he writes. So Ernest Hemingway is an easy one. Abraham Lincoln would be another one because I want to hear from him. But I also want Harriet Tubman because I think that, that those two gives a very different insight into what was happening in our world history or in our world during that period. Mm-hmm. Winston Churchill is another one that I would like to have at my table because of what he did, but also the man he was. You know, there was a lot behind that guy. He was a very complicated man. And mm-hmm. what he accomplished during the war was amazing, but there was a lot that happened also around that. And I've always been torn on this one, either Albert Einstein, Oppenheimer, or Leonardo da Vinci. All three of them are scientists, and what each of them contributed to our society is extremely powerful. And I feel that every dinner with those with five people needs to have somebody from that community in there. And I've never been able to choose one. And of course, Oppenheimer is right in my forefront of my mind right now because of the movie. Mm -hmm. But all of them have so much to bring in. By the way, if I had to really choose, I would dump, I would probably bring in uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, bring in Leonardo. And I would also bring in um, Albert Einstein. And I would get rid of Churchill. And I would get rid of Abraham Lincoln if I had to choose. (laughs) 
So nice. what, I, what I find interesting uh, about the Da Vinci choice is that he was a scientist on one side, he was an artist on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. That yes. is that is a dimension that a lot of people don't understand, right? Two completely different sides of his brain as well. Yeah. You know, he, he is such a unique person because he was this beautiful artist and he was this brilliant scientist. And his mind alone, geez, it would have been great if we could have taken a look at that afterwards because, you know, typically you are not a left and right brain person. And this guy must have been both. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when is your book coming out? Yeah. I don't know what to write about, but I want to see it. I want to read it. Yeah. <laughs> no book for me. Yeah. <sighs> That's okay. A video series is fine as well. Yes. You go. might see the videos coming out. But... Perfect. So. Perfect. I love it. Love it. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate yeah, this. Thank Taking you very the much. Time this, talking. These are great questions. Too. So I appreciate you so much. this. Um, thanks for taking the time and for everybody watching, please check out uh, the website and um, please stay tuned for more crazy people joining us, inspiring us and sharing their knowledge and their experience with us. All right. Take care. Bye bye.